Yeah, we, we were under a number of tornado watches and warnings yesterday, but it seems like Arkansas, Iowa, and parts of Indiana took the brunt of that. We didn't... Uh, it wasn't even all that scary here. It was a little windy, and it rained, like, really hard very briefly. That's all we got. Yeah, it, it had to have rained um, real hard here because uh, when I got up, I could see evidence of the deluge. When I took the dogs for a walk, there were a bunch of leaves that had been formerly in the eaves that were now um, at the other side of the downspout and other areas that I could just tell had been uh, inundated for a minute, at least with some some water. So that rare gutter cleaning service storm. Yes. That's pretty nice. Uh, yes, because that means I don't have to get up there and do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's rad. So, Steve, besides, you know, meteorological non-events, how you doing? How's stuff going? Um, not too bad. Um, things have been uh, picking up a little bit uh, around these parts. So, uh, um, been been um, venturing out a little bit more uh, in the uh, post-COVID uh, situation. And, and I think I'm going to be the next session of classes at the Civic in South Bend. I'm going to be teaching some improv classes. And, oh, that's cool. Yeah, got involved with a little group up in Benton Harbor as well. So we'll see how that goes. A little group in as much as it's not very many people or that the people themselves are very small? <laughs> it's not a very, it's not a, that uh, much of a group of, uh, the, the group is small currently. They And they had been sort of on hiatus for a while. Um, and so I guess, I think since 2017 and they're just kind of getting back together. So it'll be, we'll, we'll see what happens. I don't know. Uh, I've only met with them a couple times, but uh, it's nice to be getting out a little bit. Right. Well, now that you can. I, I reject the term post-COVID. However, having thought about it for the last minute or two here, I don't know anybody who's had COVID all that recently, right? So whatever it is that we did stumbling through the American response to this pandemic, <laughs> either, well, it, it, it bore fruit one way or the other, right? So either the distancing and the masking and the immunization vaccines worked or the people who were going to die from it have died from it or both right yeah and when i say post covid i don't mean after covid i mean i mean it in the same way that people say uh you know uh post diluvian um after the flood so oh, this, yeah, would, yeah. Okay. this is just after the existence i mean covid is here now we we live in a we live in a world with covid there was pre-covid and there's post covid but not post covid as in covid is gone it's just post covid as in you know like post chernobyl so like a, a bce C E yes. kind of a switch. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> yes. And, and which now stands for COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Before COVID era and COVID and era. After COVID, yeah, after COVID era. A million years ago, at my very first job, my boss realized that I had some sort of a natural talent and for some reason a desire to keep working in restaurants. And he took me aside and he said, Randall, you could be really good at this and you could go far if you could just learn to keep your mouth shut. If you're listening to this, you'll know I took part of that advice. I should, we should reach out and try to find people who are currently opening restaurants because it's such a long process to open a restaurant. So I'm, I'm one, here's, here's my, my, my question. I don't even have a thesis. I just have a question. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're out there now and you began the process of opening a restaurant after, say, February of 2020, 
What does that look like? Because I know folks who opened restaurants sort of during the meat of the pandemic, like right in the thigh of the pandemic. But that process had been started pre-pandemic. And I wonder what it looks like to open a restaurant with the umbrella, with the shadow of COVID, hovering over the initial process, right? That's It yeah. has to be wildly different and this sorry if you're opening the second location of like your really successful pizza place first off congratulations and i'm proud of you secondly fuck you for being successful thirdly <laughs> that's not what i'm looking for like if you are a restaurateur who's opening a new concept or a new a concept that is new to you and you're starting either right now or since the spring of 2020 what does that look like what is that process like why are you so crazy that you want to open a restaurant right now i guess that's <laughs> well, what i, I mean that know. could be asked that could be asked uh, bce as well as ce <laughs> um you know why are you so crazy that you're opening a restaurant but i i think it could go either way and i think um because i would say right now um, just after all the all the stuff that we looked at and after, you know, going through the pandemic, um, the height of the pandemic, I should say, that th what I would want to say is you're crazy to open a place that doesn't have at least the ability to do drive through yeah. at some point. Um, like it, like if you don't have a nook in a, in a space that's um, available to do it, or, or carry out, you know, a window of some kind. If, it, if it's not a drive through window, it's a window people can come up and take stuff and, and go. Um, that those sort of things would be built in. But I would imagine it really depends on your experience yeah. of the pandemic. Because if you didn't have to get takeout anywhere, if you didn't, you know, weren't in a place that uh, shut down fully or was worried about stuff, um, you know, then maybe it's not as big of a concern. And also, I mean, there are spaces that just don't lend themselves to that. So you just got to kind of roll the dice. If you're thinking, well, between 1918 flu pandemic and the 2020, I mean, that was 100 years yeah. between the two. So I'll probably be good, for the, be good for the next 100 years and I'll let the next generation worry about the takeout window. So I don't know. I don't know how you think about it. Well, let's play this out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to In the Weeds with Ben Randall. I'm Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. What would I open up right now? In as much as I have not been part of a restaurant opening, fuck, 15 years, probably. So what would I open right now? I mean, my first move would be to say, what didn't close during the pandemic, right? And what did they do right? Or what, what were they accidentally, in an evolutionary sense, what were they accidentally already armed with that allowed them to weather the pandemic? And how many of those things still are important, right? So like I said, pizza is a great example. It's already well designed for a streamlined carryout model. It's mm -hmm. already got built-in delivery systems in, in, in many of those locations. People love it, right? And what did we need during the pandemic? Comfort food. Pizza is comfort food for a lot of people. So that one's kind of done. I'm not saying that I don't do pizza. I made pizza last night it was delicious i i call it loaf pizza because it's a focaccia but it's like three inches tall and it's a full like a half sheet tray it's monstrous amounts of food pizza's not going anywhere so if i were to open a place i'm not going to open up a pizza place right yeah what else i think did well one other thing one other thing i think pizza has going for it that maybe some other places don't is that there's an infrastructure in place to produce packaging yeah for it to be taken out yeah so it's not just that it's you know 
yeah, it, this round thing can be easily taken out, but also there's tons of places that are producing boxes for it because it's been a delivery item for so long and a takeout item for so long. And the expectation is there in terms of, I get this thing in a box, I have some kind of expectation of what food in this box is going to be like um, versus some places that are like, these french fries are going to die before they get to you. Right. Whatever we put them in. And so there's no sort of real expectation of, I need to throw these in the air fryer to revive them or whatever. Right. Well, I mean, we talked about that a little bit a long time ago that, like, if you really wanted to have a French fry to go box that would help out the product as opposed to just encapsulate the product, you would almost need to build in, like, on the interior of the lid of the box something absorbent, right? Like a diaper on the inside of that because they're going to be kicking <laughs> off steam and you want to absorb that steam because otherwise it titrate is the wrong word it condenses and it falls back down onto the fries and makes them into potato soup but you're right i, don't, I hope i'm not offending anybody with this there's really not much work to be done with pizza boxes they're perfect there's no there's no innovation there that needs to happen right nobody's asking for a better you know like you build a better mousetrap and the world will be the path to your door nobody's asking for a better pizza box because it's done it's good leave it alone right and so you're yeah. absolutely correct the so uh, just take a quick step back pivoting flexibility uh versatility those were the those were the watchwords in the very beginning of the pandemic in all facets of my food service world right everybody was like we pivoted to this we were flexible for our customers with this right like that sort of thing pizza didn't need to be flexible or pivot or anything pizza was just like you still want yeah. pizza we still have pizza fucking great right yeah. as like still pizza. yeah a diner is going to be like well we're boned because you can't have people sitting shoulder to shoulder at a counter at a at a diner getting greasy scrambled eggs and whatever because it just didn't work, right? And you certainly are not putting that into a to-go box. Nobody, sorry, I love a diner as much as anybody else. Ain't nobody getting to-go greasy diner breakfast, right? Just not a thing. Yeah. That's not a thing. And it's not, like you were saying, it's not that there's not an infrastructure in place for it. It's not that there's not to-go boxes and whatever it's that you wouldn't think of it you wouldn't be like yeah let me get hash browns and toast and and two over easy eggs in a box to eat 40 minutes later no nobody wants yeah. that so I, I i would not open a pizza place also now we're it's not that we're overwhelmed with pizza places but so many other places closed that just the market share <laughs> of pizza has gone up um yeah as far as like what restaurants are available out there um we do not look like we're about to see another resurgence like we did with Omicron, like we did with any of these uh, variations of COVID. Or at least if, if that's happening, the reporting on it is minimal because we were getting these like waves of the like aftershocks following an earthquake, right, for a minute. So I don't necessarily see the the hardcore precautions needing to still be in place right i'm not seeing masking i'm not seeing people doing like insane sanitation of their surfaces and stuff like that with the number of vacant storefronts as far as restaurants are concerned in major cities across the country this might be the time to open a restaurant yeah however what you were saying about making sure that there is a streamlined effective and uh, a, a process that makes sense for to go you got to build that shit in right from the start. That has to be half of your business model right there. Because I would think enough so. people are still nervous. They still don't want to eat in a crowded room. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're going to decrease the amount of tables, which we've talked ad nauseum as well about how that's always the owner's um, 
solution to any restaurant problem is adding more yeah, tables, yeah. not not adding more servers or or you know um, adding another grill or whatever. But we'll just add more tables, and all our problems will be solved. So if you're if you're having the opposite of that, where you have to remove tables to make people comfortable so they will actually come in, right? Uh, for some people, then um, and and it's just more comfortable, like. Broadway theaters not comfortable uh, because there's so many seats in there and they're so small and everyone has to get up in order for you to leave if you're in the row more than you know one you know if you're not on the aisle um, not a good model for restaurants you want people to be be comfortable uh, but uh, yeah I don't know because it's going to be tempting there was a there was a place in Orlando again this is BCE yeah um, uh, that was seemed like it might be a decent location, but every restaurant that ever went in there, and there were quite a few, died. Huh. It was, I don't know what it was. It, restaurants have always been location, location, location. Um, I mean, long retail, I'm sure, but right. restaurants, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a good location, if you, if people can't get into your parking lot or whatever, it kills your restaurant. Uh, so now, I guess even more so, you, you, there are other things to look at when you consider what location you're going into. And I don't think it'll be as clear because it, it can't just be, well, this restaurant died, but um, so maybe it's not a good location. Well, maybe it died because pandemic for what it maybe people chose early retirement or whatever. And uh, the reason it's now vacant isn't just because it's a bad location, but a variety of other reasons. So it's a lot to consider if you're going to try to open a place. Right. Well, and a lot of downtown Chicago restaurants notice this, that location, location, location was great. But then the location didn't even change. It was, like you were saying, if you had a lunch spot in an office park and then COVID happened, you went out of business because there wasn't anybody in the offices, right? If you had a breakfast spot near a transit hub, that you went out of business as well, right? Like you could be sort of beholden to your location and it's working out fucking great for you until the circumstance changes. And so, yeah, that's that's one of the intangibles. That's one of those things you just cannot predict unless you can tell the future, in which case you're not opening a restaurant because you're going to go, oh, look, the future's awful for restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Why, why would I ever? There's a restaurant we've talked about. I've talked about ad nauseum on this show called Folgarelli's, which is in Traverse City, Michigan. And w- I, I love nearly everything about the place. It is a high-end sandwich shop where you can see they've got all of their meats and cheeses and whatever, and they're slicing stuff there, and they're doing – uh, hot sandwiches and cold sandwiches, and they have soup, and they also have like a high-end grocery store. And this is not a Staples kind of a grocery store. Not to say that you would go buy groceries at the office supply store, Staples, <laughs> but like you're not buying milk and cheese and shit like that, and eggs, especially not eggs. We'll get to that. At this place, this place has like way high-end, you know, pasta, frozen gnocchi. They've got calamari. They've got crazy cheeses and wine and coffee and spices and beans and all this kind of stuff. It's a Oh, there's a word for it. It's not commissary. It is provisionary. It's a it's a provisions store. <laughs> and I love it. And so what would I open up right now? Fucking that sexy grilled cheese store that I've been talking about forever, right? It would be a bakery. It would be a deli. It would be based entirely on sexy grilled cheeses, but it would have a case that would have salami and cheese and spreads and like an artichoke dip and shit like that. Not grab-and-go necessarily, but there would be a grab-and-go component of it. All the seating would be outdoors. This would be in the south somewhere. And uh, everything would be on disposables because everything would be, you know, it would be compostable clamshells and stuff like that. But we're not doing hot sides, right? If you want a starch side to go with your sandwich, which is made out of fucking starch anyway, it's bags of locally produced potato chips or it's pasta salad we make in-house or something like that. That is what I would open because you get you get to, like... 
bite at all of the different parts of the Apple market, right? The market Apple. Where you've got people who are wandering by and they see a rad sandwich place and they want to get a sandwich and sit outside and drink a beer and whatever. You get people who are like, I'm picking up 40 sandwiches for my office down the way. You get people who are going to the beach. So they're getting sandwiches and chips and pop and whatever, cookies, you know. That is what I would open right now. And then it also keeps, you have no table service whatsoever. It keeps your staff at least as far away from the customers as whatever your service counter is. Great. Yeah. Minimal dishware to do, right? Like you're just cleaning serviceware. So most of your employees are uh, either assembling sandwiches, they're working the deli counter, or they're uh, cashiers. And that's the whole deal. I'm in for all of that. And you get booze sales, which is, you know, 40% of your profit. Yeah. I, it does make me wonder what the spread is between, uh, for the places that closed between. Um, I don't know if niche is the right word, but restaurants that provided us, you know, were, were uh, a specialty. Right. They, they, like, the, 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 we do this thing versus your uh, cheesecake factories that are all over the place. Uh, because if you have to pivot it's uh, to takeout or whatever, I imagine it's a little easier if it's like, look, with this, we do high-end grilled cheese. That's what we do. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do with takeout versus... Um, a cheesecake factor is like, well, we have to pare down our gajillion item menu to half a gajillion items. What what are those half a gajillion things going to be, and how do we package them yeah. and send them out the door? Well, and I imagine, I, having not been in a cheesecake factory in 20 years, I imagine that their business model is based on volume. I bet that all they want is to just get as many butts and seats as possible all the time. And as soon as COVID hit, I bet you that that was a significant issue for them. How significant? I don't know. But because they have a big corporate machine behind them. But the other thing I was thinking about for my fictional sexy grilled cheese place, I throughout the entire pandemic have been much more comfortable going to a place where I can sit outside, especially if I don't have to go inside. So like an ice cream window on the outside of this that's behind that deli line that you can access from the inside where you can place an order and they give you a yell when it comes up and you go back to that window, but you stay outside the whole time. I'm here for that too. I, I did see, uh, I don't know where, um, but I did see that a lot of places, or there was a place that was selling their igloos that was for outdoor dining. Yeah. Um, because they, I guess people are thinking that the cold weather outdoor dining might be over or uh, yeah. um, that, that needing to be in your own space outdoors might be over. So if you wanted uh dining igloo or whatever they were going they were still not cheap but i think they're like <laughs> half the price of whatever this place paid for them um we were thinking about getting for our backyard totally tangential you can get a clear or at least the top of it's clear sort of like a dome kind of a thing to go over a hot tub in your backyard so you can use it year round <laughs> uh we don't have a hot tub so that would have to be like part of that plan but uh that didn't bother me in the slightest that sounds awesome <laughs> yep All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, again, if you are in the process of opening a restaurant or if you have opened a restaurant, but specifically you started the planning process after COVID happened, BC or uh, um, CE, COVID era, definitely get a hold of us because I've got questions, man. Best way to get a hold of us is in the weeds WBR at gmail.com. That's my email address. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group if you search for In the Weeds with Ben Randall. My Instagram is Chef Ben Randall, which I am on like embarrassingly often. And Steve runs a website for us. In the Weeds WBR.com. Where you'll also find lots and lots of deeper dive on stuff that we talk about on the show because Steve and I are constantly sending each other uh, 
articles and little news blurbs and shit like that, many of which we're going to be talking about today, because even though this is our 300th episode and we should be doing something celebratory, classically for us, we're sort of underprepared and we're just kind of doing this. <laughs> and we're going to talk about something that has nothing to do with an anniversary at all. Yeah. Or April Fool's Day, which happens to be. It's also today. I forgot about that. Um, it's We're coming up on, a uh, little personal background on me right now, we're coming up on spring break at the school where I am the food service director, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, make all the jokes you want, this is the best job in the world, in the restaurant world at least. Uh, so starting next Wednesday, I'm off work for 10 days. It's fucking great. However, because I do, like, there are great things about working for schools and there are not great things about working for schools and what happens before every break is half of the teachers realize break's coming up and they're like, ah, we need to do a party. And we have been fucking <laughs> busy with catering at the school for the last week. But I have two more days of work, Monday and Tuesday, and then I'm off for a while, which is awesome. Nice. A uh, new teacher came up to me. I'm I, I'm the Guinan of the place, minus the goofy hats. <laughs> and Guinan's a shade darker than I am. Where people just talk to me. And there was a new teacher came up to me and he goes, the vibe in this building is weird. And I said elaborate on that. I don't know what you mean. And he goes, we don't like just coast into a break here, do we? I said, oh, no, no. It's like falling off a cliff. Everything gets way fucking more stressful and then break time and everybody just goes away. I said, but that prevents murders. Like a lot of murders would happen otherwise. So that's everybody's going to come back real happy and nobody will be dead, which is awesome. Yeah. At least yeah. historically, that's been the case. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's a, It's weird to have been out of legit sit-down restaurants for so long that now my life is sort of it goes in these waves it goes in these waves where it's like we're busy on a school year schedule as opposed to being busy in a restaurant schedule where it's like oh we're coming up right. to mother's day oh we're coming up to halloween oh we're coming up to you know these things and on the opposite side we're coming up to thanksgiving we'll be closed for two days we're coming up to christmas we're closing for three days you know that sort of thing we're coming up to new year's everybody in the world's coming here you know i don't have those schedule stressors anymore i have different ones but it would be such a transition to go back into restaurants man like i'm spoiled fucking spoiled yeah you've been able to be part of the problem on valentine's day instead of part of the solution and for a while now. mother's day and oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do a couple of updates before we get into our food disasters which we teased last week and you sent me an awesome article about it uh where i learned two very important things but let's do some updates first <laughs> so do you want to do chocolate factory explosion or do you want to do egg prices first? Um, well, let's do egg prices because then the chocolate factory can kind of lead into the other. Awesome. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you are living in the United States of America, you are well aware that eggs have been very expensive for a bit now. And we've talked about this on this show briefly, which is eggs cost me the same that they always have because we've had chickens for the last three years. So they cost me basically table scraps and not allowing the chickens to die, which is more care than anything <laughs> else, right? We feed them like chicken feed as well, but they eat a lot of like the ends of romaine and the insides of apples and peppers and shit like that. They go bonkers for that stuff. So my eggs have been for a given value of free, free. Everyone else has been paying up to five twenty-five for a dozen eggs. Is that what I saw at the high end? And there has been a huge increase in incidence of avian flu. Now, one of the things we talked about to catch you all up, commodity eggs raised where there's like 7 billion chickens in a warehouse, 
those are the areas where we've seen these marked increases in price because one bird gets avian flu, they all get it. You get somebody mm -hmm. like Phil's Cage Free, which is who we buy for my school, right? We guarantee to all of our clients, we get Phil's Cage Free eggs. $42 for 15 dozen. Comes in a big box. And for years, I was bummed out about paying that amount. However, I watched commodity eggs, which I always see on my order guide as well, go up to $109 for 15 dozen. While Phil's Cage Free remained at $42. Now, it just came up to $47 in the last couple of weeks. Don't know why. Could be an Easter thing. Could be that, could be just supply and demand. Because as we all know, Jesus loved eggs. So <laughs> they did go up by like six bucks for my last 15 dozen that I bought. I don't really mind because commodity eggs are still in the $70 range. They've come back down a bit, but they've gone. They're still, they used to be like $22, <laughs> you know, it used to be like half of yeah. what I was paying. So now I feel great that we've been doing this this whole time. And it's because the way that those farms are managed, you don't get outbreaks on the scale that you get when all the chickens are like fucking cramped together, right? Right. Covered all of that before. So here's this article from CNN. High egg prices send profits at largest U.S. producer soaring more than 700%. 700%. So... You and I joked that, yes, avian flu is pushing the production down. So uh, demand is up. And by the law of supply and demand in our bloodthirsty capitalistic society, price goes up. We talked about that. And then you mused they also could be gouging, even though that's illegal. Turns out they were gouging. Fucking surprise, surprise. Cal yeah. Maine Foods. So this is from CNN. Cal Maine Foods, the largest egg producer in the United States, reported revenue doubled. And that's just how much money they brought in. And profit surged 718% last quarter because of their high, their sharply higher egg prices. The company, which controls about 20% of the U.S. egg market, according, according to Reuters, said its average selling price for a dozen eggs in the quarter ending February 25 was $3.30, more than double the average of $1.61 a year earlier. Get this. Revenue rose to $997.5 million, profit $323.2 million. The profit last year, $39 million. Unfucking real So ladies and gentlemen, if you have been buying eggs and telling yourself, look, I need eggs, but it's just these poor chickens are dying, and this is what it costs to get the eggs because they're scarce, they are not scarce, you are being gouged. This is yeah. classic price gouging. And the only solution that I can see, because it's like gasoline in some ways, it's like that you you just, if you're baking, you need eggs. If you're, you know, a breakfast place, yeah. you need eggs or whatever. Yeah. But as far as uh, like people, just regular old people, the only solution I can think of is to do what you do, which is have chickens in your backyard. Right. There are a number of other options. Like you can get on a farm share, like a CSA that does eggs, and you're going to be supporting local farms. You're going to be doing all sorts of good. That price will be probably on par with what you're paying at the grocery store, but you're not getting gouged. That's a cost of doing business to support a farm. Somebody like Phil's, their prices haven't really gone up. Uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Farmer's market. If you can't get part of a CSA, farmer's markets are popping back up. So now it's April. The, the indoor markets are coming back to warm up for the summer markets, you know? Yeah, that's, th those are great options as well. Because, yeah, the, the supermarket stuff, it, being the, the uh, capitalistic free market, which I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing necessarily um, any more than needs to be, but the market 
bears whatever price the market can bear. Yeah. And if they just made 700% more than they made last year, what they're saying is, you know what? People will pay more for eggs. And so those prices, like gas prices, are not going to come all the way back down to where they were. Yeah. Um, they'll come down a little bit um, so that we're thankful to these gracious companies for bringing their prices down. And they're still going to be, um, you know, next year, maybe their profit will be, um, you know, 400% what it was, uh, you know, before they hiked the prices. But I don't, I can't conceive that after seeing that people will pay more for eggs, that they'll bring the egg prices back down to 166 or whatever. Well, and we see this with a lot of commodities. And gas is a great example of that, where gas prices will go up. And we'll hear, oh, shipping prices are up. We'll hear, oh, there's unrest in the Middle East. Oh, we'll hear, oh, it's inflation. But when those things stop happening and inflation goes down, the prices of those things do not come back down, right? So you're absolutely yeah. right. It's smoke and mirrors. The whole thing is a sham. And yeah, like we live, at least, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening in the United States, we live in a structure here where we are encouraged to be as non-self-sufficient as possible. Again, Two weeks ago on this show, we talked about how I was shocked to discover that you can buy a machine and fill your <laughs> own pills with shit, right? You can just put whatever you want in there, and there's no regulations about it, really. You just can't sell them, right? So the government sort of doesn't care if I were – I could make a pill full of wood shavings. They don't care, right, as long as I'm doing it to myself. If I try to sell them, if I try to do a thing that's going to make money for myself, I can't do that part. But they sure don't make it easy either. Like, I had to dig around on the internet a little bit to figure out how to do it. And, man, let me tell you, making these uh, fiber supplement pills that have, like, beet powder and turmeric and uh, exhausted coffee and stuff in them, it's been great. Like, I really enjoy these things, and I'm going to make a bunch more today. Uh, <laughs> it's we, – we are sort of – we not even sort of. We are encouraged to consume, not produce. So, yeah, mm -hmm. if you want to have three chickens in your backyard, first thing you need to do is check and see if you are allowed to. Municipalities, yeah. townships, cities will tell you you can't. Here in Chicago, you can as long as your neighbors don't complain. There's like a sound ordinance. So I would recommend not getting a rooster. And if you do get a rooster, you're not going to get eggs. You're going to get a shitload more chickens. That's how that's going <laughs> to go. So get three or four hens. You'll be fine. It's not cheap to start out, you know. The little baby chicks themselves are pretty cheap, but you have to have a coop. You have to have a run. You have to have food and water, and you have to keep an eye on them. You have to keep predators away, all this kind of stuff. But once you have those things in, that's sunk cost, right? Like, I'm not paying that every day. For the most part, what I'm doing is throwing table scraps at them, and they give me eggs. Works out great. This is more like a partnership <laughs> now than anything else, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's a number of things that we as human beings can do for ourselves. I have six different varieties of tomatoes that after we record today, I'm going to a hardware store. I need to buy really big pots to put them in for outdoors because they're easily – my seedlings are all four inches tall now. They're huge. Even though it's still too cold, it's going to snow tomorrow again. Uh, but I, I have a little greenhouse I built in my basement, and I have all of these tomatoes. I'm going to grow myself a shitload of tomatoes this summer. I'm going to make – pizza sauce, marinara. I'm going to put whole peeled tomatoes in jars. I may never buy tomatoes again because then I'm also going to take and save some of these seeds from these tomatoes I grow. And I'm going to plant those next year, right? Yeah. There's so much stuff you can do. I have three avocado plants. I have four coffee plants. I have one orange tree. I have one grapefruit tree. Like you can just grow shit and there's no law against it. And you go to the grocery store and you buy one grapefruit, you can grow like 10 fucking grapefruit trees out of that. <laughs> and nobody tells you this stuff, right? So, like, the front of my house looks like a jungle now, 
which is awesome, <laughs> you know. Uh, or you can spend five dollars a dozen on eggs, knowing that Cal Maine is going to profit seven hundred and eighteen percent more than they did last year. Yeah. And who is that? That's whoever those shareholders are. That's not even the chickens. Do you think the chickens yeah. are getting better like accommodations out of that? Nope. Not a chance. And and I mean, this is my gripe about um, publicly traded companies in general. Um, and anyone that was a part of Etsy before it uh, became publicly traded um, understands this as well. Um, publicly traded companies usually, by and large, are more about their shareholders than they are about the people that are actually buying their product. And that's because shareholders make them this way. If you if you hear about an activist shareholder, uh, that, someone who really wants to turn the company around, no, they they what they want is more money in their pocket. Yeah. They want a bigger dividend. And the way they do that is increasing prices, cutting costs, or whatever. Usually um, not by making the product better or making it more accessible. Um, so yeah, the, if if the the egg barons <laughs> have their way, it's going to be keeping prices high so that they can line their pocket with all that hot uh, egg money, and not keep egg prices a, at a level where I mean, isn't thirty million dollars enough in profit? Um, you know, I guess it depends on how many ways it's being split. Yeah. But I also can't conceive. It's like okay. How many chickens did they lose, and what's the cost? Are they incurring no cost because they're just taking chicks from other chickens they already own to replace the chickens that are uh, that are lost? I mean, if their profits increased seven hundred percent, that's just that's ludicrous. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, and I don't know. So I don't know year over year where they get their chickens. Uh, hens will lay for five to seven years, and then they get too old. And you got to send them to, like, the old chicken's home, right? But where they're getting more, I don't I don't know. I don't know if they just, like, set aside some of the eggs and they've got some roosters waiting to, to pounce on them or whatever, and they're constantly regenerating their own. Or if they come from a, a place. Like, if all of these egg producers are just buying more chickens from a place that specifically does that, I don't know that either, right? Like, it could be not an integrated system. Yeah, that's true. But you'd think there'd be some cost involved. That's what I'm like. Because yeah. if they're saying profits increase that much, I mean, they did say revenue revenue only doubled, but their profits increased 700%. Something to that effect, yeah. Yeah, so uh, some of the, there had to be some increase in costs as well if if the avian flu thing isn't just uh, a conspiracy, which I don't think it is. But uh, No. Um, yeah, so anyway, in, in, interesting, if nothing else. <laughs> There was, I don't know if we covered it on this show, but there is a conspiracy theory out there. And I understand that the term conspiracy theory is a thought terminating cliche, but in this particular case, it's so dumb that I don't mind using that term. There's a conspiracy theory out there right now among people who have backyard flocks of chickens that there is a concerted effort by the folks who make chicken feed that's sold commercially to residents, like to people who are not in, in the, the egg industry, that was making the chickens produce fewer eggs so that, that they would be forced to buy eggs at the grocery store. And that was the only thing these people could figure out. And, of course, they started complaining about this, and this theory really gained traction, like in November of this past year. When it gets cold out and chickens stop producing eggs traditionally every fucking year around that time anyway, because chickens have a finite amount of energy in their bodies, during the summer, 
they don't need to use that much of that energy to keep themselves warm, so they can be popping eggs out every day. Over the winter, they have to burn a lot of those calories just to stay alive, and so they don't make as many eggs. And so I can only imagine new chicken owners were going, this must be the government's fault. My chickens have stopped laying eggs. Be like, motherfucker, there's a simpler answer to this. It's fucking cold outside. Do you want to yeah. be outside? And if you were outside, would you want to be pooping out an egg right now? Because the answer to that is no. And then all of a sudden here, it's springtime, and everybody's going, well, they must have fixed the feed. Like, no. <laughs> this is what happens every year since the dinosaurs. Come on. Yeah. But, no, it's much simpler. Um, thank you, Occam. That uh, to, to think that they've somehow created some sort of compound that they can put in the food that would not cease egg production entirely in chickens. Like, it's not going to sterilize them. But they can put just enough of whatever yeah. it is, the secret ingredient, into the feed to slow it down just enough to make you have to buy eggs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. Oh. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm that guy now. There's a Calvin and Hobbes where Calvin's dad comes back from the grocery store because he got kicked out again for yelling and screaming about how many uh, varieties of peanut butter there were and why can't there just be creamy and crunchy and that's it. And uh, this w cartoon was written in like 1992 uh, by Bill Watterson. But I'm that guy... When we go to the feed store, because now I'm a guy who goes to feed stores, there's way too fucking many chicken feeds out there. This would have to be a massive conspiracy. And you would have to get <laughs> lots and lots of people. And by the way, people in general are kind of dumb and they don't work well together. To have all these different brands and all these different types of feed. You know, you've got ones that are specifically for when the chickens need to add more uh Feathers in the fall. You've got ones for young chickens. You've got ones for older hens. You've got feed that's also shared with other animals in case they are going to be getting into it. You've got like there's a thousand different kinds of chicken feed, and you're telling me that they managed to carefully calculate some sort of an egg restricting chemical into all these different. Shut up. That's gotten yeah. far too complicated in a hurry. <laughs> Every day, also, yep. they're such fragile creatures. Every day the chickens are not dead. I'm shocked. <laughs> everything kills these things which is crazy i mean now you understand i guess why the dinosaurs are extinct yeah if chickens are that fragile and they are evolved from dinosaurs then dinosaurs had to be freaking fragile right well i saw kylo ren kill a lot of them in that 65 movie so yeah i'm with you on that yeah this is this <laughs> is not a not recommend for that movie i enjoyed watching 65 i i saw the trailers for it it's adam driver uh crashes his spaceship onto earth and has to fight dinosaurs and i was like eh, four out of ten that's how much i'm interested in this and then my kid brother said to me hey did you see the kylo ren shoots dinosaurs in the face with lasers movie and i went no not yet but you described it like that fuck yeah i'm gonna see that movie my son and i went to see it my son famous for having loved dinosaurs when he was a tiny little guy we get out of that movie, his main thing was, those weren't real dinosaurs. And I was like, I know they weren't real dinosaurs. And he goes, no, 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 they weren't even, like, accurate. And I was like, some of them were kind of scary, though. He goes, well, yeah, but I don't know what sort of lizards they were. They weren't dinosaurs. And I was like, all right, so that's your big beef with this, like, not a triumph time travel movie, but definitely, like, a space movie where Kylo Ren shoots dinosaurs with lasers. Your main concern is that the dinosaurs weren't accurate enough? And he was like, yeah. I was like, all right. Well, hey, when you commit to a movie like that, you'd think you'd commit to doing your research. If it's supposed to be Earth and they're supposed to be real dinosaurs yeah. and not some other planet with some other thunder lizards, then, uh, you know. Well, and that was his thing. He was like, the whole thing about T-Rexes is that they had tiny little arms. That's why we make fun of them. Why did those T-Rexes have big, beefy arms? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe they're related to Trogdor. 
I don't know why they had big beefy arms. They were scary, but you're right. They were picking stuff up too, which was weird. I don't know. That movie yeah. was fun. I definitely wouldn't pay theater prices to see it. Wait till it comes out on I don't know HBO Max or whatever. Red box. I feel like it should have been called Kylo Ren burninates the countryside. There now. you go. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He crashes his ship for a long time. You could consider that the countryside. <laughs> that movie was all right. I would give it a. It's a pass. Like I would definitely see it, but I wouldn't see it in the theater. Yeah. I am gonna go see John Wick Four either today or tomorrow, because that's a movie that my family has no interest in seeing whatsoever talk about not a food movie there's no food in any of those movies and mainly just shooting people in the face what about the giant shark movie where people are food might want to see that movie uh black demon is that what it's called so, yeah it sounds about right it's I don't know. it's it's based on that we all read that short story in elementary school about the pearl diver guy who finds the the cursed black pearl in the big oyster in the bottom of the sea of cortez or something like this and then gets chased around by an evil demon um shark i'll see that movie again i'm not gonna see it in the theater but i'll see that movie i i have not read that short story is that what that's what the movie's based on believe so yeah it's a legend it's an old uh i remember reading monkey's paw at some point so we must have (laughs) gone to you know the 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 split in michigan middle schools between there you go the curse of the you know the demon shark and the monkey's paw. i also wanted to be a marine biologist when i was a kid so there's a chance i read that one on my own i don't know all right, so that's eggs. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not saying don't buy eggs anymore, but uh, look for what you spend on eggs. You could put all that toward uh, chickens, and that's where eggs come from. <laughs> yes, true. All right, so some sadder news, because we do have an update on the um, Pennsylvania, the West Reading or East Reading? I don't remember. Uh, factory, that uh, uh, chocolate factory that exploded last week right yes so this was sent to me uh by a listener named craig and uh felon named i'm gonna be uh really gauche and have to look this up because somebody else commented on it and i really appreciated the comment benton commented on this as well so there they found a survivor in the decimated uh factory right Right. So, this is from a News Channel 8. It's an NBC out of Tampa. Factory explosion survivor on fire fell into chocolate vat. So, this woman's name is Patricia Borges. B-O-R-G-E-S. Borges? Borges? I'm probably overpronouncing that. A woman pulled alive from the rubble of a Pennsylvania chocolate factory after an explosion that killed seven co-workers says yeah. flames had engulfed the building and her arm when the floor gave way beneath her. That might have been the end if she hadn't fallen into a vat of liquid chocolate. So, Steve, first thoughts. Um, I mean, again, we're not, we're not making fun of no, the situation no, 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 no. at all. Um, and that's not my goal here. But my thought was uh, I've heard of death by chocolate being on lots of menus. This was uh, life by chocolate. Right. If Alinea was near this explosion, they would immediately have a death by chocolate dessert on their menu because we know exactly how uh, considerate they are about things like that yeah but this was live live by chocolate life by chocolate um amazing the worst thing that could have happened didn't right so this lady the building around her explodes her arm catches on fire and she falls into liquid chocolate which could not have been cold right 
because you have to heat chocolate to like between 90 oh i'm not, i'm going to get roasted for not knowing the tempering temperatures of chocolate it's below 100 deg degrees i believe but it's not cold by any means that extinguished her arm she broke her collarbone and both of her heels in the fall and then she was stuck in there for 9 hours as the room also began to fill up with water because of the firefighters not their right. fault that's they were doing their job Right. At the uh, R.M. Palmer Company factory. Now, what we learned from this article as well is that this was clearly a gas leak. Because... Yes. An, All signs point to gas. Quote from the article, Other workers have also said they smelled natural gas according to their relatives. The, this is a quote from her. At 4.30 p.m., Borges told the AP she smelled natural gas. Okay, so she, she told the Associated Press that at 4.30 p.m. that day, she smelled natural gas. Sorry, that sentence is written strangely. It's yes. not like at 4.30 that day, she called up the Associated Press and was like, yo. Right, right. Uh, it was strong and it nauseated her. She and her coworkers approached their supervisor asking, quote, what was going to be done if we were going to be evacuated, she recalled. She said the supervisor noted someone higher up would have to make that decision. She got back to work. Just before 5 p.m., which was a half an hour later, the building exploded. She had, she was on a ladder when the building exploded. She fell to the ground and then fell through a hole in the floor into a vat of chocolate. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. That's craziness. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, I cannot, I cannot imagine. And um, I don't know if, I mean, I don't want to, again, I'm not, don't want to be trite, but if the supervisor survived, then I would imagine the supervisor doesn't have a job anymore. I don't know. Like, who who do you blame for something like this? Because um, the, the person higher up isn't there. Like, so either that person needed to have been given the authority to be like, yeah, if there's a gas leak, you don't need authority. Yeah. If there's a gas leak, you don't need to have been delegated authority to evacuate a building in a gas leak. You evacuate the building. Yeah. Um, and it and they unfortunately these people didn't feel like they could leave on their own, um, which also needs to be a thing. It's like no, if there's a gas leak, I I leave, I get out of the building. Um, but you know, if you think it, your job might be at stake, then I don't know all the all the circumstances. But you know, there was obviously some sort of failure here um, on the management side of things in terms of the the safety of people. If people have been complaining about a gas leak because up up further in the article as well it says she and others had complained about oh that just says 30 minutes before the factory blew up um uh yeah so um the factory the the company itself so far hasn't said anything about any of that but yeah i mean natural gas smells that way for a reason and it's so that you smell it because that's not natural to the natural gas they add that odor yeah. so that you smell the leak and can get get away right right right. yeah it, it does not have a smell that i'm aware of they add that sort of a sulfury rotten egg sort mm -hmm. of a smell to it for exactly that reason like you said you smell that stuff something is wrong yeah I, so you're you're right that there was what there probably was was a failure of training or a failure of policy right like maybe they've never had an issue with natural gas in that place before and either they have a policy in place for, like, you smell this shit, you call this number, which is the city, you call this number, which is the supervisor, but in the meantime, you get everybody the fuck out. Right. If it has been so long, people don't notice systems that work. So if it has been so long since they've had any sort of an issue with that, 
training may have lapsed, policies may not be enforced, and maybe this person was new. I don't know. There are a hundred different ways that this person could have this the, the supervisor that they spoke to when the workers first noticed the smell. There's good chances that person thought they were doing the right thing by saying, I'm rolling this up. I am not yeah, authorizing yeah. work stoppage right now, right? Like, I'm not going to be on the hook for that if it turns out that this is nothing. And that's a failure of training on management's part. That's a failure of policies and upholding, you know, structures that they have in place for safety and stuff like that. I, it's still, like, that's no excuse. I'm just saying that could be what has happened there. And it's it's the same in my school, right? Like, no kid in my care at that school has, like, choked on something in a while. We continue to do ongoing trainings about CPR, where the nurse's office is, where EpiPens are, things like that, just in case. And so if a, if they haven't had a, tr a problem with the building exploding for a long time, those trainings may have gotten, you know, dropped by the wayside. Yeah, and I guess another interesting thing be um, will be where, or, or the cause of the leak, like did a, uh, did a burner blow out? And so, but it was still, you know, uh, gas was still uh, coming out the um, yeah. uh, the burner or, or whatever. I assume they're using gas burners, which is why they have gas coming into the building. Um, because you'd think that uh, safety-wise, I know it's an, it was an older building, but um, do they not make devices that detect natural gas that could, you know, some sort of alarm like carbon monoxide detectors? And if they do... Are those effective in a place, you know, like a kitchen where there's going to be fumes anyway because the gas is being used so often? Right. Or does that render them, you know, useless? And uh, the other thing that's kind of crazy in this or just um, uh, coincidental in weird ways is they wouldn't have had to have stopped production because they were switching from one product to another product. Yeah. So it's not like there was a lot of chocolate that was going to be left out somewhere. I mean, obviously there was the vat of liquid chocolate in the basement, but it, it you know, there there weren't going to have to shut down a line that was operating because she usually worked a machine, she said, but she was cleaning because they were in this process of uh, of switching the machines over to run a different product. Yeah. So it seems like it would have been a perfect time to be like, let's evacuate for now for safety's sake, um, because we don't have anything going on that needs to be tended to really. Uh, but I, again, this is just me trying to interpret this article. I, I don't know the yeah. exact circumstances. So obviously we hope that this woman's going to have a, a, a speedy recovery and such. Yeah. Um, and she did lose seven coworkers. Like that's the entirety yeah. of my kitchen. That's like if everybody in my kitchen died, right? Including myself. So one thing I didn't notice when I was reading the article that was pointed out to us by a listener named Benton is at the very end of the article it says, Borges now faces surgery on both feet and a long recovery. Her family has launched a GoFundMe campaign to help her pay the bills. This is Benton's comment. I did not get permission to use this, but I, I feel like this is going to be okay. Quote, The crap icing on the awful cake. Why on earth is someone who was injured in an industrial accident while on the clock needing to pay for their own treatment? Was the factory uninsured? Where is workman's comp in all this? So that yeah. is a great question. Why at this stage, when this woman was, she she watched coworkers die in an explosion, she was on fire at work, she fell through a floor at work and had to be rescued, why would she have to pay anything for any medical treatment? At no point could you possibly say, well, getting her heels fixed 
is cosmetic. Like, what is going on with that? That's, and I, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I didn't notice that when I read through the article to begin with, but that, as far as, like, an indictment of American medical structure is concerned, that's the important part of this article. Yeah, well, um, now, to be fair, this might not, they might not be talking about medical bills because all of that could be covered but i mean the reason that aflac exists is in order to uh i'm i'm not promoting aflac by any means i i don't currently uh have a policy but their whole thing is that they will pay your other bills while you're in the hospital aflac isn't medical insurance it doesn't pay medical bills so maybe this is like she has to she still needs to pay electric bill Uh, uh, her family still needs groceries you know there's all these other things mortgage has to be paid but because yeah maybe they're going to be paying her medical bills but she's not drawing a salary yeah, right now yeah that's a good so point. um so it could be those bills and not the other um that you know need need covered because yeah surely uh, there's some sort of i mean they're going to be held liable on some level uh, for, for this anyway so uh, but maybe things need to be paid right now before that stuff kicks in I don't know how any of that works because you're right the the medical uh, thi- American medical uh, insurance and everything is it is messed up over here so um, who knows what exactly that pertains to I'm also surprised they didn't actually put a link to the GoFundMe in the article they just mentioned it so yeah yeah so uh, they they mentioned that uh, she came to the U.S. 31 years ago from the Puebla state in South Central Mexico, and she's worked at Palmer for over four years. She said she's seeking accountability. Quote, I wanted to speak so that this will be prevented in the future, she said. For my colleague Judy, who was a woman that she saw die, I want, to, I want there to be justice. Uh, this does not sound like this is a woman who thinks that her company is completely not at fault. It sounds Correct, like yeah. she feels like they did not do the right thing in the moment, which yeah. I can agree with. I don't want to indict this company myself, right? Like, this feels like a breakdown of communication and training and policy, but that doesn't yeah. bring those people back to life. Right. Well, and, and it doesn't then remove culpability right. from, like, the, the, com- some, the company failed on some level. Um, if people are complaining about gas 30 minutes before the explosion, then... Yeah, there's definitely a failure, and the company is ultimately responsibility for uh, responsible for that. Um, doesn't matter intentions. We're not saying that they were a terrible place to work at, or you know that it's not an indictment of any other activities of the chocolate company. Right, but in right. this instance, th- they're the one, the company is responsible at the end of the day for what happened. Right. Bare minimum, worker safety should be very very high on that list of, of responsibilities. Yeah. yeah. Even if it, you know, even if, even if safety is job one, or you know, safety was, you know, whatever. Um, in this instance, there was a failure there, and you know, the the company is ultimately responsible. Yeah, yeah. I would think. I don't know. So you are absolutely correct that this article, unfortunately, dovetails really well into what we were going to talk about today, anyway, which is food disasters throughout history. Uh, of which it seems there are two types. There seem to be two types, Steve, of food disasters. One of which is giant barrels of something floods town, yeah. or innocuous dust turns out to be violently explosive. Yes. I didn't see any other kind of disaster in this article you sent me. Uh, yeah. it's, it's wild. 
Well, um, there, well, there are a couple other little ones that we can touch on. But yeah, the by far the most seem to be waves of something. <laughs> or, yeah, um, what we thought was innocuous dust, and it turns out no dust is evidently innocuous. Yeah, so why don't you tell me about the Boston Molasses Flood? Because I think we did reference that one in the last episode. Um, because there's at least one point in here which shocked me, absolutely shocked me. Yeah, so um, this is uh, this one was known. I don't know where it was I first heard of this, but this is maybe the the most well known one, at least in the U.S. because it happened in the U.S. This was 1919 in Boston. Um, well, and it's and, it's uh, so well known that my kid sister has a recurring nightmare about this, and she was not there. <laughs> right, this was over a hundred years ago. Yeah. Did she read a book about it as a kid or something? Must have. I don't know. Yeah. Um, a tank of molasses owned by... Okay, so I, this is... I'm looking at the Mashed article yeah. right now, which you can find a link to on the website. Um, or you can just Google it. Um, this is History's Most Bizarre Food Disasters explained on Mashed. Uh, or you can just look up food disasters and you'll find uh, cake fails as well as uh, <laughs> things like this. Um, a tank of uh, molasses owned by U.S. Industrial Alcohol, who was ultimately found liable for the disaster, well, yeah, um, the, had been leaking for a while, and it held held 2.5 million gallons of molasses. Um, and it says the design was flawed from the beginning. It was never built strong enough, and uh, so collapse was inevitable. And a 15-foot wave of molasses which uh would have been i don't i'm not seeing the temperature but molasses that wouldn't have been room temperature right um it probably would have um i'm not sure but anyway 15, yeah i don't a 15 i don't know foot wave raced through the streets at around 35 miles per hour that was so, the that was the number that shocked me Sorry, yeah, I was because people always say slow as molasses. Yeah, right? I was trying to do some math. So, um, 2.5 million gallons weighs 28,650,000 pounds. If you're if if you're if you want to know that in in like weight measurement, uh, anything under pressure is going to be warmer than something not under pressure. So yeah, I I don't I don't imagine that it was boiling, but man. 35 miles an hour. That's faster yeah. than I can bike. My top speed on my bike at one point was 24 miles an hour. I was really yeah. going fast. And that molasses would have overtaken me quickly. Yeah. Uh, people were swept along with it. Those that survived suffered broken bones um, and uh, other injuries. It was months before the bodies of the 21 uh, dead were recovered. Um, and they said uh, cleanup efforts weren't helped by the fact it was unseasonably warm when the tank burst and the molasses hardened as tem temperatures plummeted, plummeted, excuse me. And uh, the history today, they quote, or they uh, reference, um, says it took 87,000 man hours of work to haul, chisel, and saw away the hardened molasses that covered everything. Crazy. So I want to skip down in this, this, this website a little bit to continue on this molasses tip. Sure. Honolulu's marine life, devastated by molasses, right? A pipeline yeah. in Hawaii that pumps molasses into cargo ships for transportation was found to have a fault in 2013. That pipe in Honolulu Harbor started leaking and it spilled 233,000 gallons of the stuff into the water. The results were devastating. The molasses immediately sank to the bottom. And when divers were sent in to assess the damage, their re report via NPR was chilling. Everything down there is dead. 
So basically what happened is it's thicker than thicker and heavier than water. It sank straight to the bottom. It uh, somehow absorbs oxygen out of the water. I don't know what that mechanism is. But basically yeah. anything that has gills was suffocated. And um, coated stuff. Like it was like those images you see of the Exxon Valdez uh, crash back in the 90s in Alaska where there was just like oil all over everything. They were saying yeah. that what they saw down there was just like a slick of molasses along the bottom that was just covered uh, covered everything. Yeah. Uh, quote, the environment's natural cleanup mechanisms were going to take a long, long time to repair the damage because it is in a harbor as opposed to being out in the actual ocean where there's currents and stuff like that. Right. Because, it, I mean, eventually, it, being molasses, it would dissolve. But not immediately. So um, um, with no current, it's going to take longer for that yeah. to actually happen. So now I don't have an update on it. This was ten years ago, but I don't. I don't know uh, how quickly it, it was cleaned up, or or if it's still an ongoing thing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I I mean, is this because of um, sugarcane stuff going on in Hawaii? Is that why there? I would. I didn't think. When I think molasses, I didn't think, well, I don't think Boston really either, yeah. but I didn't immediately think Hawaii. Gotta be sugarcane. Um, so, uh, yeah. Who knew? Molasses, dangerous. All right, so do you want to stick with uh, liquids and tell me about London was once flooded with beer? Yeah. So, yeah, another tidal wave of liquid. Um, this one was 1814. A 22-foot-tall fermentation vat... Um, ruptured and uh, spilled somewhere around 320,000 gallons of beer into the surrounding St. Giles Rookery. The fi another 15 foot was no was the other one yep. 15 feet too. Yep. That's how big these waves tend to be. 15 foot wave collapsed houses, uh, flooded others, and killed a lot. Um, did it, did we have a death toll from this one? It just says a lot, as far as I can see. Um, so uh, I wonder if that's actually a British measurement. If a lot means like yeah. 35. Yeah, maybe. Um, so there, uh, there's some apocryphal information that's usually thrown into this one, which is that uh, people were out trying to get beer. Uh, thirsty mobs descended on the scene and started collecting as much beer as they could, but they said that's not in any of the contemporary reports. Instead, it seems that an eerie calm descended over the area in hopes of making it possible to hear survivors who were trapped in the ruins, which I find much more probable because... Um, if I get hit by a 15-foot tidal wave of beer, I'm, I don't think I'm going to scream and holler at how great this is. I think <laughs> I'm going to be flabbergasted and just stand there shocked. Well, um, and what's going to be in it after it's, you know, destroyed three or four houses on its way to you? Like, I don't want to drink beer that's got glass and shit in it. Right, yeah. And I think, if anything, it, there it's being conflated with one of the others. Yeah. Well, the last um, point that I wanted to touch on with this one is that there were further deaths associated with this because... Uh, a family who had people die in the flood were displaying the bodies like in a wake and so many people were interested to see what a body looked like after it had been drowned in beer that uh, the house's floor collapsed because there were too many people yeah. in there and people died at that point as well. Yes. It's like whenever there's a hurricane in Florida, I learned after being down there in a hurricane, the death toll continues to rise for so many weeks afterward because... A lot of the deaths attributed to the hurricane didn't happen during the hurricane. They ha they happened when someone inexperienced with a chainsaw went out to try to clean up their property. And, uh, um, yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's that it's still 
None of this would have happened without the 15-foot wall of beer, um, but it wasn't directly attributed to the beer. It's it's one of those things that the beer did cause this kind of later down the road. Uh, you had just mentioned that there was actual reporting about people rushing in to drink the booze that was rushing through a town. I think that was the A River of Whiskey Set Dublin Ablaze one? Yes. Yep. At 4.45 p.m. on June 18th, 1875, Malone's Malt House in Dublin checked their storehouse. Everything was fine. A few hours later, the alarm was raised, fire was spreading, and it was running through the streets on a river of whiskey. Uh, there were around 5,000 barrels of whiskey in the storehouse, and by 10 p.m., so many barrels had burst that the river was two feet across, half a foot deep, and ran down entire streets. And it was on fire. So it was like uh, Lake Erie, basically, except yeah. in Dublin yes. and made out of whiskey. Yeah. And uh, firefighters, knowing their knowing their stuff, um, didn't know exactly what to do because uh, fire doesn't. I mean, water is not going to really help because it's it's alcohol that's on fire. It's just going to yeah. spread it around. Right. So they tried to create fire breaks with sand and piles of manure. I imagine that smelled awesome. Uh, the steaming liquor kept moving though and did serious damage before it was finally extinguished. Shockingly, the death toll wasn't high, and those deaths all happened that happened were due to alcohol poisoning not only were people yeah. filling jugs and vessels with free-flowing whiskey but they were also drinking right from the river of fire <laughs> yep and then there were thefts of uh unbroken casks of whiskey from the storehouse when everybody else was running around trying to put the fires out and then 13 people died because they drank those casks i shouldn't laugh at that but at the same time it's like come on yeah I wonder how many deaths were caused from um, manure-polluted whiskey. Like, you want to be <laughs> upstream right. of the uh, manure dam if you're getting your whiskey. You don't want to be downstream of the manure dam. And this is whether it's on fire or not. I think it's just safe to say you want to be upstream of the manure dam. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like words you just live by. Yeah, yes. <laughs> All right. My next question for you. Have you ever had... Uh, what is it called? I just lost the word. Is it Brunost? Yes, Brunost. No. Oh, yes. I think, didn't we have that on one of the cheese days? I believe we did. Yes, I did not like it. So there is this, it's not really a cheese. It's a Norwegian dish that's made out of the whey as opposed to the curds. You boil it down, it caramelizes, it turns into this texture that's like sort of cream cheesy, sort of... Uh, pencil erasery, sort of gummy. It's weird stuff. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, if you've tried it and you don't like it, you're fine. It's okay, but it's <laughs> never going to change. So I would not recommend trying it again. Right. In 2013, a cheese fire burned so hot that it shut down a Norwegian tunnel for days until experts could confirm the stability of the tunnel hadn't been compromised and that it was free of potentially toxic gases. So because this cheese is so high in fat and what's the other thing sugar it burns almost as hot as gasoline so yes. it caught on fire in this tunnel somehow i presume there was like a transport of of this brunost that caught on fire and um wow that would have been wild to see a cheese fire at yeah. that scale I do. When I first started reading this, I thought um, that it was going to have spontaneously combusted. Like maybe that was part of the process because of what it is that it, it maybe it generates heat as it's doing its thing. Uh, because barns will spontaneously combust because if you bale, um, 
bale your hay before it's dry yeah um, or your you know the your then it, it generates heat as it's drying and and you know you can if you don't leave it out in the field long enough it will catch your barn on fire so i thought well maybe it's one of those kinds of things whatever chemical reaction is going on in the not cheese is creating heat but yeah so i don't know how it caught on fire but boy did it burn hot yeah um i need to go check something real quick i can smell garlic and i'm not having a stroke or anything i put some garlic into the oven to roast and if i can smell it down here in my basement it might be moving a little too quickly so i'll be right back okay <laughs> like the brunost that was maybe moving a little too quickly in the tunnel uh-huh huh see uh see what i did there um Yes, it's, uh, it is very caramely looking. You could mistake this stuff from caramel. I don't suggest doing so. I don't suggest putting it on ice cream or anything like that. I don't remember it being absolutely awful. I just remember not liking it. And it might be just one of those disconnects with my brain because it does look so much like um, caramel that maybe my brain just couldn't handle having it and it not being caramel. Because it was kind of kind of definitely like a roasted i wanted to say burnt but that that isn't quite right scalded maybe kind of a scalded flavor um to it so i definitely this little picture they have in this article has like four slices of it they're they're longer slices maybe uh two times the size of a american single slice they have them kind of folded up on this piece of bread that seems like way too much uh, to me i also don't know if it would melt um but yeah so go try it if you can oh you sent me a picture of your uh, garlic the roasted garlic is perfect so i'm glad that's oh, now my right. new timer is when they <laughs> when i can smell my garlic roasting from the basement it must be ready it's done yeah ding 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 <laughs> <laughs> So as far as I know, uh, in these articles that we sent each other, that's all the liquid disasters. Do you want to get into previously? Well, well, there's, Wait. There's one more I I didn't send you because oh. that would have been three articles. So I don't think it was in the other one either because I sent you another one from Atlas Obscura. Um, I only skimmed that one. Sorry. Spoilers. No, that's okay. The, uh, it, there were, Okay, so there's two, I guess. So there's um, the the uh the bread one is is not liquid we'll get to that one later so here's another liquid one this was lucknow's ketchup collective drowning incident Yeesh. um this was in lucknow in india um and similar to uh people falling in vats of things this i guess this was 2010 so this isn't that far away but unfortunately someone fell into a vat of the simmering um vegetable juice fermented vegetable juice okay whatever you know they're making ketchup and um then uh five people jumped in to try to save this person and they all succumb to um not only the 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 liquid but because it's fermented tomatoey stuff that there was a you know they suffocated yeah, i think yeah. um in in that before they were able to um uh save the person so all six of them unfortunately uh, were killed, uh, and it wasn't quite ketchup yet, but so that was a ketchupy one. And the other one that I was going to mention, um, okay, so this one is Modern Farmer, um, and a lot of these have the same, so it's the London Beer Disaster, Molasses, Boston, yada yada, Honolulu. Okay, here it is, 1985. So this isn't a, a wave, oh, uh, so there's that one, and there's also a wild turkey distillery fire Okay. Um, in 2000. No humans were injured, 
um, but the river's fish population did not fare so well in that one. Yeah. Um, uh, so wild turkey fire. So, but this is the this is the other one. Uh, um, not a tidal wave or leaking of any kind. But in 1985, the um, I'm sorry, Austrian, not Australian. I'm gonna have to correct that online. <laughs> the Austrian wine industry was forever tainted when it was discovered winemakers were sweetening their vintages with diethylene glycol, okay. an ingredient used in the production of antifreeze. Antifreeze. Yep. Riding the wave of popularity of sweet dessert wines in Germany during the late, late 1980s, Austrian winemakers suffered from uh, a particularly tart harvest. Looked for a way to sweeten their wine without damaging the body of the drink. The poisonous additive was first found in a bottle um, in a German supermarket. Further testing discovered the, uh, discovered the nefarious tampering to be pervasive throughout the entire Austrian industry. The resulting... Um, uh, Dionysian dystopia rocked the <laughs> wine world and effectively ended Austrian wine exports for nearly two decades. And, you know, um, with good reason. Luckily, no deaths resulted from the scandal aside from the deaths uh, death of Austrian dessert wine. Um, it has since recovered. Even a little poison won't keep people away from a good uh, Trocken Bernalis. <laughs> I'd have to see the I, word. Yeah, I butchered that. But, um, yeah, so the Austrian tart wine harvest, and they thought, you know what? Um, what's gonna? We'll just add some antifreeze to that. It'll sweeten it up because antifreeze is sweet. That's why so many people kill their spouses with it. If I remember correctly, because I think I heard about this before, it was decided to add that because if you just add sugar to wine, then you produce more booze, right? And you can it, it can mess with the whole thing. So they wanted to put something in that was sweet that the yeast that's already in there would not process, right? And they were like, sure, let's use this poison. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, I mean, it's tasteless, I guess, otherwise, other than sweet, right? Yeah. Um, it's not going to add some weird flavor, but it's like, come on, don't – you have no chemists? You have don't have any people <laughs> – I mean, you'd think if you're fermenting something, if you're making wine, that uh, that you'd have people there to be like, well, no, that's poisonous. We, we're not going to add that. We need to know when this becomes, you know, unpotable, impotable, um, whatever, when it's no longer – you know, when it's poisonous, we need to not market it. But they were like, hey, you know, it sweetens it up. Ugh, crazy. Trockenbernauslesse. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so and it looks like... I don't know what it, it doesn't look like wine, but... Right. No, and the other thing is, is that, like, when you are testing batches of something for adulterants, you kind of already have to know what you're looking for. So it's not like Star Trek. It's not like you take a vial of liquid and put it into a computer and the computer tells you everything that's in there. When you're testing for stuff, you have to test for those things. And so you have to be looking for it. Who the fuck is going to look for antifreeze in your Austrian dessert wine, right? So it's easy to get past tests like that unless somebody is specifically looking for it, you know? Yeah. And it's like, is that, uh, it's just crazy. Cause that, that, I mean, it's a poison. Yeah. It's, it kills people. Yeah. Um, so either it was just gross, um, idiocy ignorance or uh because it was like someone's like hey i've been nursing this antifreeze bottle for the last <laughs> week it's pretty tasty let's put that in there i mean i don't know how that how that idea happens I, they thought they could get away with it yeah man so and uh they didn't yeah, thankfully yeah uh do you want to get into some dust dust disasters yeah. this is yep. still shocking to me because we talked about this when we first talked about that chocolate mill exploding and we thought maybe it could have been cocoa powder but so many food dusts 
are violently explosive that I never thought yeah. of because I knew flour was, and that's the first one I want to talk about here. The largest flour mill in the world was destroyed in a fiery explosion. So this is 1874. Cadwaller Washburn, that shit sounds made up, built yeah. what would be the largest flour mill in the world, seven stories tall, fueled by water power, channeled from the mighty Mississippi River. And with more than 200 workers, the Minneapolis Post says it was one of the city's largest employers. Four years later, it exploded. So this was May 2nd, 1878. The explosion was heard miles away. This, the entire building, along with surrounding mills, were completely destroyed, and the 14 workers who were in the mill for the night shift were all killed. There was a fire that killed four more people. It burned so hot and fast that firefighters could not get close enough to put the blaze out. Investigations found that the fire had been caused by a single spark, one that came from dry millstones rubbing together. That one spark ignited the flour dust that hung in the air, and the incident changed the way flour mills were built, starting with Washburn, who overhauled his mill design to be safer. Yeah. So this, was, this wasn't, like, negligence at the time. It was just something that was uh, not foreseen. Yeah. And then, and it did answer our question as to whether it burns or it explodes. The answer is it explodes. Yeah. So, um, particles in the air are close enough to start a chain reaction, and there's just a, the right amount of oxygen to fuel the fire. So, that's what it is. Like, anybody who's ever tried to start a fire, you don't just have a log and you just light the log on fire. You have to have lots of tinder and little twigs, but the main thing is that there has to be lots of air in between them. However, you can go too far, and if you have particulate in the air with air in between them, they catch fire so quickly that it is essentially an explosion because it's so many billions or trillions of particles all catching with enough air in between them. Yeah. And then as soon as that happens, whatever that shock is that's happening will make all of the rest of the flour that may actually be sitting comfortably somewhere jump. Right. And then yeah. that explodes as well. Yes. And, and having built the world's largest, um, it would have been then at the time the world's largest capable uh, flour explosion. Yeah. Uh, because just size-wise, the other mills weren't going to be able to... Ugh. Yeah. Um, but uh, learned from mistakes, and now they have explosion-proof motors <laughs> in flour mills. Sorry, I'm looking for the next... What was the other... Oh, yeah. Kansas's deadly grain elevator explosion. This, again, yep, like you were one. saying... 2010 in the previous so the wichita eagle shared some shocking statistics oh i guess this article is from 2010 sorry my bad in the previous 30 years more than 680 people were killed in kansas alone while working and one in 10 deaths happened on a grain elevator grain elevators have scared the hell out of me since i saw the movie witness where a dude was killed with all of the grain the corn pouring down onto him in a silo yeah. right so that's yep yeah to continue to uh, uh, quote this article, and that's partially because of the possibility of being buried by tons and tons of corn or falling. In one case, the deaths were caused by an explosion. So on June 8th, 1998, grain dust was ignited somewhere along the elevator in the DeBruce grain elevator. The Department of Labor estimated that there were as many as 10 explosions that were set off, and by the end, 7 people were dead and another 10 people were injured. According to World Grain... Grain dust explosions are caused when five things come together. A confined space, oxygen, an ignition, dispersion, and grain. It creates a flash fire, and when it happens in an enclosed space, like a grain elevator, the consequences are catastrophic. So, it's like an upside-down rocket, 
right, where the top of the grain elevator is the the nozzle of the rocket, except it's just pointed down. There's nowhere for that force to go, so it goes yeah. outward. Um, and it says uh, that they concluded it could have been prevented in spite of the fact that grain dust is about six times more explosive than black powder. Which makes me wonder why gunpowder ever needed to be invented at all and why our guns aren't all shooting rye. Yeah, well, I think it's because black powder you can ignite when it's, you know, not airborne. Yeah, it's packed like, all together. Grain dust has to be, otherwise you'd have to have some sort of uh, uh, perfume um, <laughs> uh, atomizer to uh, poof the, the, the grain dust and then the spark. Well, like um, Green Hornet's gas gun, yeah. Yeah. And then at the very bottom, so skip the next one, is the cornstarch explosion. That one I knew in, about. So of all of the powders and dusts that I knew about that could explode, cornstarch is the one that I always thought of. Okay. And then seeing, like I said, I knew that creamer was, and I we didn't see a creamer explosion, so um, creamer must not be as, a, as explosive, or there must have been stuff... Um, in place for a lot longer in creamer factories. But uh, Cedar Rapids residents um, in uh, 1919 um, were about to witness a uh, disaster of epic proportions. It started at the Douglas Starch Works. Just after the night shift clocked in, a small fire ignited the factory's supply of cornstarch, and the resulting explosion, uh, result explosions rather, were powerful enough to blow the windows out of buildings all the way across town. Um, it ended up uh, killing 43 and injuring 30. Um, and one of the ones that was killed was even a, a child who was hurled off a couch from the force of the blast, um, according to the article. So uh, more than 200 homes were damaged, and recovery efforts took a long, long time, but there's an inspiring footnote in the tale. So many people from the surrounding communities showed up to help that restaurants started running out of food. I don't, how is that good? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so um, cornstarch also... Explosive. This is the only one of these disasters that I actually have a story about, which is when you are working a grill at a restaurant and you are cooking anything that's fatty, right? So that's burgers, that's steaks, that's things like that, right? Ribs, maybe. You have a, a catch basin, a drip tray underneath that grill, which usually has foil on it because it's a bitch to clean otherwise, right? And it catches all that shit, and that shit burns on there. You pull it out ideally once a day, and you change the foil out, or if you're lazy, it's as needed, right? Sometimes the stuff that falls down there will then catch on fire, right? There is a huge difference when that fire happens down there between pouring cornmeal on that fire to absorb the oil so that the fire goes out and pouring corn starch on that so that it tries to explode your face, right? I am not saying I did that, but I am saying I witnessed that happening at a restaurant where I worked where a cook was told the grill is on fire, but not in a good way, dumped some cornmeal on it, and he grabbed cornstarch and did that, oh, no. and it made it far worse. Wow. Because no matter, I don't care how careful you are, you cannot pour cornstarch without it poofing dust all over the place. Right, right. Yeah, it's very fine. Yes. So I have witnessed um, that. The building did not explode. 35 people did not die. But that dude did get fired. So there was that. Wow. I don't believe it was the first instance of something happening where the chef thought this guy should probably get fired. But... If you also don't know the difference between cornmeal and cornstarch, I don't know what sort of business you have working in any kind of a restaurant anyway. Well, maybe he was illiterate, but he could 
sight word. He recognized the word <laughs> corn, but not the words meal or or start. I personally think he panicked, but at the same time, don't panic. Like sometimes girls catch on fire. That's just like what happens. So yeah, know what hot. yeah know mm-hmm. what to do and do the thing. They're kind of made of half fire. Yeah, so I can um, I can support this story with lived experience. Cornstarch um, is crazy don't, shit. Don't try this at home. Ah, uh, bingo, bingo. <laughs> uh, now the one right above that is the one that you recalled. Like I recalled the molasses, uh, or, or you know I mentioned the molasses one. You mentioned this one, the one right above that. The sugar one. Yeah. So this is the Imperial Sugar Company explosion. The sugar in your kitchen isn't going to explode, but sugar in industrial and commercial quantities is quite a different story. According to the U.S. Chemical Safety Board, the February 7, 2008 explosion that left 14 dead and 38 injured was classified as a, quote, combustible dust explosion and fire. According to the Houston Business Journal, 17 of those who were injured suffered such severe burns that they were kept in medically induced comas. And the president of Imperial Sugar Company said that, yes, it had been dust from refined sugar that was being stored in a silo that ignited like gunpowder. I guess this isn't the one I was thinking of, but continue. Georgia Fire Commissioner John Oxendine, it's a cool name, (laughs) reported that the explosion had entirely destroyed the three-story building and the fire had spread along the nearby river. He recalled, he called it the worst industrial accident he had seen in 14 years on the job. They also give some other not-so-comforting information. There's usually more than one explosion. The subsequent ones are often more powerful than the first, and it takes just an estimated 1 32nd of an inch of dust in just 5% of a room to be considered a significant explosion hazard. It, it legit does not take much. No. And you're right. This is not the one I was thinking of, but this one I had heard about. Because uh, I thought it was Imperial is what made me think of that. Wasn't that... Uh... I did see the one when I was looking for these that you mentioned yep. of the, the locked doors. We can go right to that one. So the tragedy of the Imperial Foods fire. I do not believe that this is the same Imperial. Imperial Correct. Foods is in North Carolina in an accident September 31st, 1991. Steve, I remember this being a lot more recent than it is. But that's also because I think of like 10, 15 years ago as being the 90s, which it is not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To get back to the article, resulted in one of the state's worst industrial disasters. Steve, what we didn't want to say about the chocolate factory happened here. We do not want to cast aspersions on the chocolate factory, people. Let's let that news get reported. These fuckers were doing shit wrong on purpose. Okay. Uh, It started with something seemingly small, but the resulting fire killed 25 people and injured another 56. According to government technology, it started when a hydraulic line near one of the chicken processing plants' fryers ruptured. The local fire chief remembered starting his day at 8 a.m. and 30 minutes later, the plant's operation manager ran in to tell them the plant was going up in flames. At the time... Firefighters didn't know there was anyone inside. There was. About 90 people were working when the fire broke out, and they found getting out of the building was impossible. Emmett Rowe, the plant's owner, had reportedly ordered the emergency exits to be locked from the outside to prevent theft. So, Defeating the purpose of emergency exits. Bingo. The 11-year-old plant had never been subjected to safety inspections that would have discovered the glaring safety violations like locked emergency exits. Witnesses on the... This is haunting. Witnesses on the outside of the building later said they could hear the screams of those who were trapped. And when the fire was finally put out, blackened footprints were found on the doors where the employees had tried to kick their way out. Yeah. 
unreal. This I remember, like I legitimately remember reporting, like I remember watching a television and reporting on this. Like I can see the helicopter shots in my head right now of the news reporting of this fire. Yeah. And I mean, this should go without saying, but if any of you are working in any sort of building where the emergency doors are locked, report that shit to OSHA. <laughs> Immediately, yeah. Uh, because that's just not um, not good. It's some, yeah, that should not have happened in the 90s. Uh, that's that's like the, that that stuff, I mean, it shouldn't have happened at any time, yeah. but that's like the, the shirtwaist factory fire, you know, in New York or whatever. That's like before safety measures are put into place, um, people who should have known better and didn't or whatever. But that was another one of the locked doors, and that should never have happened either. But and I guess that's one of the things about this. I think of like industrial accidents, which we've seen at least twice now, and I don't think of like food. <laughs> right, 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 right. And the things that happen aren't things that would have immediately popped into my head. Like if you're refining corn oil for something, I could see, oh yeah, well that could catch on fire. If you're making sugar, the fuck? I don't expect sugar to catch on fire. Now, having yeah. said that, I've caught sugar on fire before, so I should know better. But in general, no, I'm not thinking about like if there was a milk factory fire, that would freak me the fuck out. But I, I, we haven't seen any. No, the cheese is I think is the closest yeah, we're gonna yeah, get. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is this one popped up in a lot of these too, and this is the uh, tapioca almost sank a ship. Yeah. So this is an this one's almost. funny. Um, so it's 1972, uh, and a freighter is sailing along um, uh, when a minor fire starts. It smolders along for a bit, and the crew. Um, can't seem to completely put it out. So they pull into a dock in Cardiff, Wales, um, in order to get some proper uh, firefighting. And they uh, turn the hoses on the fire, and then something strange starts to happen. Because what happens when you mix water and heat and tapioca, Ben? <laughs> you make pudding. <laughs> yes. And the tapioca started to swell, and the ship started to, I imagine, groan. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and to plump up a little bit. And they were afraid that it was going to... Um, blow the seams on the ship and the ship was going to sink there um in the dock and so they started unloading as much as they could and uh so they're they're saying you know this doesn't sound right um this sounds like complete fiction right and the, nope according to snopes it's absolutely true the fire uh the freighter was called the uh casarate 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 i like I the way know. you said it first it sounds like a martial art the way you said it the first way <laughs> casarate <laughs> um the fire had been burning for 25 days at sea and and <laughs> I guess I, I mean, is it was it just the tapioca that was burning? I don't know. But the the best part about this is the uh, um, one fire chief actually uttered the words "tapioca time bomb." Who would have thought? Which sounds like a Wilco album. Yes. So, so I love this particular one because it's not really a disaster. Nobody died. It's kind of funny, and just the idea of of hundreds of dudes with snow shovels just hucking all of this tapioca over the side of a boat as it's trying to explode and like in my head it's moving the tapioca is moving like popcorn which it wouldn't but like <laughs> yeah I, you take hot tapioca and you put a bunch of water on it that's all it's gonna do is cook right yeah too funny <laughs> um and to this day, tapioca outlawed in Cardiff. No, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> uh, and uh, we should we should finish with one that's actually really sad. So hundreds in Lebanon were killed by poisoned grain. The short story on this is that in 1972, there was a drought, a severe drought, uh, in Lebanon, and so they imported a bunch of seed 
from Mexico, I believe. A high-yield, desert-friendly wheat crop. So they ordered, they, they brought in all these seeds. It took too long to get there. So they were, um, so they missed their planting, like their crop planting window. But what mm -hmm. they did not know is that there was a mercury-based fungicide on the exterior of the seeds, right? Listed in English and Spanish on all of the containers. In Lebanon, they apparently could not read that, right? So... Yeah. All this grain shows up. It's too late for them to plant it, for them to get an appropriate harvest. They feed it to some of their livestock. Apparently, the mercury takes a long time to produce any sort of health issues. And so they said, well, okay. And then they started feeding it to people. And then hundreds of people died and thousands yeah. suffered permanent brain damage from eating the poisoned wheat. Now, eating the poisoned wheat, it sounds like it was done on purpose. That's just how this wheat seed was treated so that it didn't get a bunch of mushrooms growing on it when you planted it in the ground, and it was never designed to be just eaten. Yeah, it was safe to plant yeah. but not to eat. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't poisoned, it was poisonous. Yeah. Um but only if you ate it, not if you planted it. I saw a couple different versions of this. Some people said, I mean, that yes, it was only in English and Spanish, and one of them I actually did see a picture of the the um, the bag. But also, some people say that some of it was stolen and maybe put into the food supply, and others say that maybe they because it was dyed a different color too as another warning. And th so they said that maybe um, some people thought that if they washed the dye off, they'd wash the poison off ah. as well. Um, so that, none of that really matters. It, people ate it and, and it killed them and after this i mean keep in mind this is 1972 now we're like a shade spoiled because like we see you know that the nutrition facts label that's on every single thing you buy at the grocery store that only happened in the last 20 years 15 years right we yeah. are used to that level of transparency on food products but after this happened in lebanon the world health organization stepped in to re-examine regulations on the labeling of poisons and it is this one of those it's like an after the fact we cannot help the people who were harmed by this should this have been a standard before yeah maybe but nothing like this had ever happened before you know so it is a a live and learn sort of a situation but in the worst possible way yeah um, well, and and um, so I don't want to end on that oh, okay. that note. <laughs> so there's one more I think you skipped over. Uh oh. Um, so and this is the uh, I'm going to send this to you so you can pronounce it um, Frenchy, um, <laughs> if I can. Uh, uh, go up here. Edit. If it's from the other article, then yes, I skipped over it. Um, and you're gonna you're gonna not like that you did. Um, so this that's France, right? Let's see here. Pont Saint-Esprit. Yes, it's in yes. France. The uh, southern village of France turned into a frenetic insanitarium. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word. After its inhabitants breakfast on poisonous bread and were struck by hallucinations and madness. The hallucinations were terrifying and unexpected. One man thought he was a plane and jumped out of his window on the second floor. He broke both his legs and still managed to continue running. Someone saw himself being eaten alive by snakes. More than 250 people suffered from intense hallucinations and subsequent poisoning. The long believed to be the result of bread accidentally poisoned with ergo, the basis of LSD, a recent book posits that was an experiment run on purpose by the CIA. I have a feeling that it's probably the ergo. Uh, er, er, ergot. Ergot. Yeah, that, that one is uh, not see, I pronounced. Was on the French kick. Yeah, it's not pronounced all Frenchy. Um. So yeah. So LSD bread, 1951. 
So um, is that your there? There is a there, there is a, a fungus that lives on um, rye, particularly that if you let it go moldy, the the fungus that grows on moldy rye bread does produce a compound that's very very similar to LSD called ergot. And there is uh, a theory that the Salem witch trials were also influenced by that that people were having okay. hallucinations uh, because of moldy bread, and that was getting them high like for for lack of a better term like these people were tripping balls um but in in this it does indicate that there is a chemical company very close to this area that produced lsd on purpose and that oh. somebody snuck it into that bread again on purpose a swiss chemical company sandoz chemicals which was close to ponson esprit and produced lsd is reported to have said the Pont Saint Esprit secret is that not the bread it was not the bread at all. It was not grain ergot. It was not a mistake made by a hapless baker, but a human mind control experiment using LSD. Whether wow. or not that's for real, I don't know. Um, would I? Do I put it past people to just be like, hey, we've got all this LSD and we're right next to a bread factory. What do you think we just chuck some through the window? I, I feel like that is something that could very easily happen. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I guess especially in the 50s because there was experimentation with LSD going on oh, by yeah. the government in the 50s. Um, so, I mean, I, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll, we'll tick the uh, possible box, but um, don't know for certain. But uh, I just... It had to have been 100% surreal, A, to be having hallucinations, but then to also be in a place where everyone else was also having hallucinations. Right. Uh, um, just madness. Well, madness. It, reminds me, it reminds me of that scene in Batman Begins where the Scarecrow has released his fear toxin into that chunk of Gotham and everybody is freaking out, but at, from everybody's perspective, everybody else is the bad guy. Yeah. And that... There, there are so many wonderful storytelling levels to that because, to be completely honest, all villains are the heroes of their own stories anyway. And in that moment, like, everybody is fighting for their lives because they believe that everybody else is attacking them. And it was the exact opposite. Uh, have you seen the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats? No, I, I, uh, I know of it. It's, isn't that Clooney? Yep, hard recommend. It's got Jeff Bridges in it as well as Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it, this this is, ladies and gentlemen, this is real. Back in the day, 50s and 60s, the U.S. government via the CIA was experimenting on volunteer servicemen and women from our armed services using LSD as a way to unlock human mind uh, as far as uh, being able to see into the future, being able to astrally project. They were looking for um, telekinesis, all this kind of stuff. As far as I know, none of it worked because if it did, I think we'd be living in a far different world. But yes. like that, that was really going on. The CIA got a hold of a lot of like really high-end LSD and was like, well, let's see if we can create super people somehow. And as far as I know, it didn't work. But like the fact that that went on, I'd volunteer for that shit right now. Man, give me a bunch of LSD and tell me to try to lift cups and shit. I'm in. I'm absolutely in. Uh, and it's one of those things where it's just like, in the interest of national security, yeah, get some Marines super stoned and see if they can astrally project into a secret meeting in the Kremlin. That's fine. I don't mind that at all. <laughs> don't put it into the bread supply for a small French town. That's weird. Yeah. Well, you know, it, the 
it's funny. So um, have you seen, I don't know how much Futurama you've ever seen, but there's an episode where Bender um, is trying to win a cooking competition uh, to re redeem this uh, Helmut Sparkle. But anyway, he gives him this vial of pure flavor that he's supposed to add to his food because Bender, being a robot, can't taste and therefore makes awful food. Everything is really Absolutely. salty, right? Uh, initially, yes. Okay. At the beginning, he adds so much salt that it's like poisonous. Um, to his food, and that then he runs away, and he meets Helmut Sparkle, and uh, he teaches him how to cook, and he goes to battle Elzar in um, a fake uh, uh, kitchen stadium kind of a situation, <laughs> and um, because he uses this, you know, some drops of pure flavor in his food, he ends up winning, and even though the food looks awful, and and you know, it's by all counts, I mean, it's animated, but it looks real gross. And then at the end, the professor analyzes the liquid, and he says, Bender, it was pure water. Um, and he's like, hey, so hey, you had the talent all along. He's like, that's right, pure water with just a little bit of LSD. <laughs> um, so it's like the wine people in Austria. Guys, LSD, yes. Uh, ethanol or Diethanol glycol, no. Yeah. <laughs> I would rather be yeah. having, I'd rather be hallucinating than having my organs crystallized because of diethylene glycol. So, um, uh, yeah, if, if there's a lesson to be learned in any of this, it's dust is explosive and LSD is better than antifreeze. Right. I mean, words to live by. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's uh, it, one of the things that I, I sort of found heartening when I was reading all these articles is that when we looked at kitchen or like food disasters, it was all on an industrial scale. It's not like... Yeah. Here's the thing you could do in your house that lots and lots of people have done, and they all died from it, right? Like, it's not right. that sort of a thing. None of this is really a cautionary tale, unless, ladies and gentlemen, any of you work in an industrial bakery or a sugar factory or a chocolate factory, this this kind of thing, which you probably have trainings about the dangers of these kind of things anyway, which I, 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 would, I would hope you would have those trainings. In and it's kind of surprising, considering how long we've been producing food on an industrial scale, yeah. that these are those stories that kept coming, you know, in all the articles that I saw that, that I mean, there isn't really, and even, even the, the one, um, the most immediate one, that's not a chocolate factory. Um, that's not a food disaster. That's a, by all counts so far, a natural gas explosion. Yeah. So that that's that's unrelated to what the factory was producing. Sure, sure. So so it's surprising to me that there aren't more, you know, uh, food uh, production disasters that have, that have occurred. That, that's also kind of heartening, I guess. There there isn't the great Hershey or the great Reese's, um, you know, tragedy of whenever or the 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 pineapple massacre or or whatever. So well, right. Uh we have yet to get any sort of like uh, bioengineered stuff that goes rampant, which I'm kind of waiting for. You know, like for a minute there was uh, orange juice that had omega-3 fatty acids in it, which I think went out of style. But I'm like, is there salmon in this orange juice? But one of these days we're going to get something like a star corn that's going to lift itself out of the ground like El Seed from the Tick and just go running amok and killing people. I'm kind of here for that because what's left? I mean, we've had a pandemic. We've got wars. We've got uh, all kind of other shit going on. The oceans are getting too warm. Like, one of these days, Godzilla is just going to show up and teach us all a lesson. I'm I'm here for it. Bring bring it on. Bring where's the season finale? You know. And I think I mean if it's not their slogan, it should be. But I I would say that's why Monsanto's slogan is "We're trying." Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's for Armageddon. So a bunch of years ago, now right along I-94, if you're driving north to south in Chicago, you can see the Morton Salt Factory, right? 
big yes. old fucking thing. Now it is a music venue. It's been recently renovated. It's called the Salt Shed into a music venue. I've not been to it. Uh, I was invited to go see Iggy Pop there a little while back, but I did not go, which I fucking should have done because apparently he still puts on a good show for a guy who's like 108 years old. <laughs> However, a number of years ago, this is probably a decade ago now, one of their walls collapsed and like thousands of pounds of salt came flooding out and buried a bunch of cars in their parking lot. I don't think anybody was hurt or killed, but they interviewed a bunch of people and a guy that I know, who's not like a good friend of mine, but I know him, was interviewed, and I think he was determined to give the dumbest interview of all time. Because whatever question they asked him, he goes, yeah, the wall fell down, all the salt came out. And then he just stared at the camera. <laughs> and it's one of those amazing moments of like, of all the interviews, why did you do that? Because this dude is also like violently intelligent, super smart dude. He could have said anything, and he just said exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah, it looked like a bunch of salt came out of that building. <laughs> I love oh, it. It's crack commentary. Me up. And it's because ex <laughs> it's, it's exactly what happened. What do you say about it? The yeah. wall fell down and the salt fell out. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's it wasn't a monster. It wasn't like a space portal. They probably yeah. use a bulldozer inside to pile the salt against the wall. And somebody drove the bulldozer too far. That's, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the only other way to go there is to try to work in as many salt puns as possible. Yeah. Like, look, this this company is a pillar of the community. Those cars and, were assaulted. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it's a shame because the people, they're the salt of the earth. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm angry. I'd say I'm salty about this. <laughs> yeah. You could just go on and on, you know. Yeah. What we need is some kind of saline solution <laughs> to this problem. <laughs> Nothing's going to grow there. Salted earth. <laughs> um. I, I will I will say just in terms of genetically modifying stuff and salt. Speaking of like, I don't think that would have been enough. Uh, so through the flash foods thing, not too long ago, Kayla got some corn, which we just she just this morning saw some more, and she said, you know, um, Steve, that's called super sweet corn on the packaging. So we just got it, and we thought you know it was like super sweet corn, but um, no, it was super sweet corn. And she made some, and we're eating it, and it was almost unpalatable. It was so sweet. Huh. Interesting. Um, it, it. I mean, like, we're not doing it again. It, it was um, vacuum sealed in this thing. So, I mean, yeah, people are still messing with stuff. So, eventually, maybe we'll get to the point where the stuff's pulling itself out of the ground and, and coming and knocking yeah. on your door. I have not grown corn in a very long time. My mother, like I've said on this show before, always had a garden when I was a kid, which I thought was charming and wonderful. And it turned out that's the food we were eating because we didn't have a lot of money. My parents did an amazing job with us. And I don't struggle at all because of a lot of the lessons that we learned from my folks, right? Like my priorities are in the right place. She grew corn, but you don't yield corn very well for a family of four on the size plot she had. So that yeah. was more of a, of a lark. What do you get off a corn plant? Like two, you know? Yep. And we, I mean, we were kids being raised in the Midwest, man. It takes a lot of corn to keep us going, you know? <laughs> uh, and then we, we did grow corn in the old house once or twice. But again, like it's the yield is not really very high. The backyard I have now, I could grow like industrial, hopefully non-explosive amounts of corn back there. But you know what I would like to do, especially because I have this dehydrator? I want to grow popcorn. How cool would that be? Grow and dry my own fucking popcorn. Yeah. That would be rad. That sounds like it's a lot of work though. Because you have to I don't you know have to, you have to dry it. 
do you? you don't you just harvest it at a certain time or well no you have to you have to dry it like what they would do is hang it so like the the husk itself rather than pulling them off you peel them back and then you tie them together and hang them up to dry okay. from that but then you have to like prick all of the kernels off of there and store them somehow but i bet i could throw it all in my dehydrator and make that process a lot faster yeah i'm dehydrating coffee these days my my exhausted coffee grounds because they're going into my um fiber pills pills. and every time i do that my wife just shakes her head at me like like one of these days i'm gonna i'm gonna go one step too far she's gonna be like you've lost your mind you need to stop (laughs) you know (laughs) and maybe growing my own popcorn will be that because i eat popcorn so much there's no way i could keep up i love (laughs) popcorn and my family's out of town for the next couple of days i'm gonna eat a fuckload of ribeyes and popcorn for the next couple of days (laughs) i think what you need to be adding to your pills is some uh bread bread flour from uh from france <laughs> just start making straight lsd pills i think that's probably illegal regardless of whether <laughs> i'm selling them or not <laughs> yeah well it might, it's probably not the uh you know making the pills out of it. it's just it's getting the lsd and having it so i'm gonna make some rye bread let it go moldy i'm gonna dry the mold out <laughs> grind it up make pills out of it holy shit i actually probably could do that fuck no, why did i say don't. that don't i'm not i have no desire to get like I do, ladies and gentlemen, I'll admit this to you now because the statute of limitations, I'm sure, is long gone, but I've done shrooms in the past. I kind of miss it. Shrooms are amazing. But I wouldn't be able to handle it now, man. I'm in my 40s. Like, that, I would, my my whole mind would break. Yeah, you ran out of window and you didn't even think you were a plane. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That was a long time ago. Luckily, that was a long time ago, and also, luckily, I survived. So, Steve, that's... That's the extent of what I've got for today. And even though my family's out of town, even though it's the weekend, I cannot not do stuff. So I have this massive list of things to do. Recording <laughs> today was on that list. I get to mark something off along with roasting that garlic. So uh, Nice. Two birds, one clove. Uh, and I get to vote by mail today, which is also nice because I've got – I don't feel real strongly about any of the candidates except for the ones I'm voting against. I am here yeah. to vote against a couple <laughs> of motherfuckers. So that's the American way right there. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. So, ladies and gentlemen, again, if you, I really hope none of you have been involved in any sort of an industrial food disaster. If you have and you're willing to talk about it, we'd love to get some information. And if you are in the process of opening a restaurant and you've started that whole process during the pandemic, we want some information about that as well. Uh, best way to get a hold of me is in the weeds WBR at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. All this information's in the uh, show notes as well. My Instagram, where you'll see a near live picture of me roasting garlic during the recording of this, <laughs> is Chef Ben Randall. And again, all this information is available on the website that Steve runs for us. In the weeds, WBR.com. And it is live. It doesn't renew until uh, May, so I must have just mistyped <laughs> my own website's name. And again, I, we are not in the business of making this podcast to make money, but if you do want to buy anything from us, you can dress like us. We have some merch up on there and uh, other fun information and, and stuff. And then, like, when we go to the uh, Cheese Curd Festival this summer, which I'm really kind of pushing for now. I'm, let's take videos let's you know take a shitload of pictures and stuff like that and that'll all go up on there too yeah, absolutely anybody in minnesota and wisconsin area if you want to come to the cheese curd festival with us fuck yeah let us know <laughs> that could be amazing if we end up getting a group together <laughs> just get sick on cheese curds hopefully not have any industrial cheese curd disasters happen oh cheese sick 
Yeah. Oh, oh no. Be a better word for that. Cheese sick is a real thing. It's like having the meat sweats, except it's cheese. Yes. <laughs> Although cheese sweats, that sounds even worse. That sounds like really <laughs> uncomfortable pants. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you have to be wrap yourself in cheesecloth to soak up the. <laughs> you're producing whey out your pores. Oh God. Gross. On that note, <laughs> for in the weeds with Ben Randall. I'm Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. We'll talk at you next week. Bye bye. <laughs> I was gonna say you need to invent the fry diaper because if anything has a yeah <laughs> has a great name, fry diaper is. I don't know if that's what you called it last time we talked about it, but I love it. Worth experimenting with. I have some old, not old, but I have some clamshells that I don't need anymore. That I could bring some home and put different like layers of paper towel in the top or gauze or whatever, like the. Um, uh, what do you call it when you have a, a wound that you need to cover up with uh, is it gauze yeah. or what, what's that pad called the, like absorbent that you tape it down over a, a burn or something yeah I think um, uh, the gauze might be o uh, only the stuff that's in a roll yeah so I don't know if that would be gauze but I know exactly what you're talking about it, it so it might be just be adhesive gauze or whatever. yeah like tape one of those to the inside of the lid of a clamshell make fries put them in there close it wait 10 minutes and see what happens might yeah. be worth a shot fried hyper that could be my my path to millions right there yeah absolutely <laughs> all right